This is Darren Pulsifer, and welcome to Rise of the Stack Developer, where the convergence of DevOps, security, and cloud-native technologies are changing the way products are developed. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the history of configuration management, DevOps, and this new Stack Developer. Being my first episode, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about my history and how I see that coinciding with this new persona we're seeing in IT and development, which I call the stack developer. So let's go way back, way back to the 1980s, where um, I started programming as a kid for fun, uh, writing in QBasic, um, everything from an inventory system uh, that I wrote uh, to help uh, for a fledgling concession stand business I was running and uh, helping my dad in his dental practice write some software for him all the way to um, in 1985 when I got my first Unix box from a lady named uh, Mimi Larson, who was a friend of my mom. She worked at AT AT&T Bell Labs and uh, they wanted uh, someone to try out their latest and greatest uh, Unix workstation. So I got to play around with that for about six months. They gave me a Unix manual and uh, and a machine to play around with. And, uh, oh, I had a blast. I learned everything you could, totally geeking out on uh, the uh, Unix operating system and had a blast. By the time I got in, into college, um, I decided uh, to study computer science and electrical engineering. And at the time, I um, also got a job on campus um, as a Unix admin. And uh, actually, before I even did Unix, uh, they dropped me in on a VMS VAX cluster. So I was uh, learning operating systems uh, at the time, uh, lots of different ones. And uh, a little bit later on in my career, I actually worked on an an IBM 360 box, um, switching tapes and and running things in the middle of the night on the weekends. Um, You know, the things you do to get through college, to work your way through college. But that background in system administration, plus my background in computer science, where I focus primarily on user interface design uh, with good uh, X11 and uh, Motif. Um, I was a a UI programmer with a sysadmin background. And my first job, I call it real job. uh, That was after I graduated. But my first job after I graduated was with a company in Toronto called ISG Technologies, where we were doing medical imaging uh, workstations for radiologists. And um, I helped design the user interface uh, for uh, some of the uh, tools that are used even still today for radiological uh, display stations. And uh, because I was a sysadmin type and a programmer, I ended up uh, doing the builds every night. I I thought it was cool, right? Because I could do programming as well as uh, the sysadmin stuff that I enjoyed doing. Uh, so I ended up uh, writing the builds um, and becoming um, the guy in charge of configuration management, which was something new to me, but that uh, ISG technologies at the time were, were using. In fact, they were in, just in the process of going from SSES to the newer RCS. Um, and that was, that was my first uh, real foray into configuration management which was uh, really kind of interesting. It broadened my horizons even more as far as, you know, how to get teams to work together and check in code and a a release process, build process, 
all that stuff um, I really enjoyed. And lo and behold, I ended up, up being the uh, configuration management grunt and the guy that uh, watched the builds every night as it took a while to build and uh, deploy our software on onto machines. It was uh, it was something that kind of kickstarted my career and would be with with me the rest of my career as kind of a configuration management uh, guru. Um, after. Um, working at ISG Technologies and in the medical imaging industry for some time, I came across um, these brand new version control systems that were more um, distributed and concurrent because the old systems only really worked well on one machine. So people would log in, they'd FTP their their code over and check them in to an RCS system, or you know there were several different techniques that we used, but then came these brand new tools that were client server-based tools, um, uh, these concurrent versioning systems like CVS and uh, like uh, the uh, grandfather of all of the client server um, configuration management tools, ClearCase. And for you um, young bucks that have only heard of ClearCase in the mythos, it did exist. Um, and uh, for 10 years, um, I... Um, I harvested that money tree of being a clear case administrator. I spoke at several conferences at uh, the Rational um, Users Conference on clear case and uh, how to administer it, uh, optimizations, all those all those great things. And uh, for a while, it was it, I, I rode that money train because uh, it was uh, not an easy system to use, but extremely powerful. Um, I even wrote a book about it. You can check out my book um, on Amazon if uh, you want some nostalgia. I don't know how useful it'd be today. Not as used very much anymore as it as it used to be. I still come across it every once in a while. Uh, so it's kind of interesting uh, to see. Um, so after uh, ClearCase, um, we saw um, some great tools in ClearCase that did something called build avoidance. And um, the build and test um, systems that were there uh, were really about um, increasing the amount of um, cycle or decreasing the amount of cycle time and increasing your productivity by doing build avoidance. Um, so it would analyze the um, derived objects from a build, like your .o files for C and C++. And if uh, the code hadn't changed for that .o file, I wouldn't rebuild it. And that saved a lot of time, right? So these, these great tools came out of ClearCase and that whole ClearCase ecosystem um, on um, maximizing build performance and um, test performance and all that. There's some great concepts that came out of that. Shortly after um, all these tools uh, were becoming extremely pop popular, a new breed of configuration management tools and some build and test and release tools started coming out as well. And the first uh, configuration management tool that was kind of revolutionary in this space was a decentralized um, and much more simplified tool um, like uh, Git and Mercurial. And um, 
in fact, Get Immaterial both came out around the same time. Uh, with, yeah, and But Git most definitely uh, won that battle. And that, again, changed the way all of a sudden that we thought about uh, configuration management and the way the developers worked together. Um, other tools began to emerge, um, some that, um, you know, almost every build team in large companies built their own continuous integration or build systems and uh, reporting and all that. But um, then um, tools like uh, the good old Hudson came out, also known as Jenkins today, uh, came out and continuous integration and continuous deployment became even more readily available through open source. And now configuration management became easier to do. Building configuration um, deployments became um, kind of the main focus now for um, configuration managers. And this new breed or this new name came up called uh, the DevOps engineer because time wasn't spent nearly as much in building software and much more now in um, deploying software and testing software. So this DevOps uh, engineer really, really was born out of, out of that necessity. And it's really interesting because DevOps is really the developer and the IT operations guys really being married together because IT started taking some of um, the load off of the development teams that in the past were doing some of their own configuration management and or build uh, uh, systems themselves. So this DevOps role really uh, came in into play, which is a really interesting space, um, something that um, back in the 90s, we didn't even have the concept of DevOps but we were playing that role. And it was typically your software developers that had some kind of uh, background in system administration. They knew about uh, Unix and Linux, and um, and they ended up being your de facto buildmeisters at, at night, right? Um, they'd uh, code during the day and watch builds at night. Um, and for you guys that uh, remember the good old days, um, I remember because I was the buildmeister and I had to monitor builds at night. Uh, they gave me an ISDN line in directly into my house, which was pretty cool because then I could work from home on some days. And uh, back in the time I was in Silicon Valley, living about 70 miles away um, and making that horrible commute. So uh, that gave me uh, the ability to work from home a couple days a week, which was great at the time because it was uh, such a, a horrible commute. So that's kind of where we got in the um, 2000s with this DevOps. Um, the turn of the millennium is when DevOps really um, kind of blossomed. We saw some really new technologies around um, virtualization and configuration management working together. And uh, really things became more and more complex, a lot more client or three-tiered uh, architectures meant not just building one piece of software, but building multiple pieces of software. And now we needed to really in, increase the number of cycles that uh, we were doing. In fact, most of our time in these DevOps worlds were spent optimizing build times 
Because um, if we could get our build down to just overnight, that was great because all your developers could check in their code and then um, you could build it overnight. And what would happen next was uh, um, all the developers could see what the problems were, the tests that failed and code the next day. So you were optimizing your whole team. So getting it down to eight hours was incredible. Um, I remember in one project uh, that we worked on, uh, they asked us, our build was uh, 28 hours long. That's how long it took to build the code. And uh, when we first got there, they had one build machine that it was building it all on. And uh, I had some smart people working for me at the time, a bunch of, uh, you know, build uh, meisters or DevOps engineers, the birth of DevOps. And we spent a lot of our time optimizing that build and we got it in under uh, five hours, which was really incredible. Uh, today, with the processors that we have today and the uh, the speed of uh, solid state drives, I'm sure that build would probably only take like five or 10 minutes now. But at the time, we spent a lot of time reducing build and test cycles. Um, today, um, these DevOps uh, are really working on continuous build, um, test and deployment now, where a lot of those things that we used to do somewhat manual are now automated and they are moving so much faster than they did before. So that's kind of the state that we're in today is a lot of um, organizations are doing these release cycles uh, much faster. I'll do a build and release instead of weekly or monthly as it used to be. Um, I'm doing continuous build and test all the time where I'm releasing several hundred times a day at different parts of, of uh, my application stack. Uh, so we're, we're seeing a major shift. And now with the um, really adoption of container technology everywhere, we're seeing it even faster now. We're seeing even, um, uh, even releasing only small parts of your whole system that you need to do through uh, microservices. So this is where we're starting to see another emergence of a new type of uh, role in the uh, development uh, arena. And that is someone I call a stack developer. Uh, There's another term out there that people use called the full stack developer. This is someone that can do user inter or a web interface or user interface. They could do the middleware and the back end, but I'm not talking about a full stack developer. I'm talking about something called a stack developer. Now, this is kind of a new concept, but I'm seeing it emerging in several of the different companies that I work with and that I consult with. And that is they have someone on their team that is starting to build reusable microservices and reusable microservice stacks. So um, a great example would be like a mean uh, mean stack where I've got, um, I've got Mongo, I've got Node.js, and I have um, other microservices maybe that I'm throwing in there as well. And the ability to configure, release, and test that in a reliable manner so I can use that stack over and over and over again. Now, these stacks, and there are several of them out there now, but the idea that we really want is we want these reusable stacks that are tailored to specific domains and or specific companies. 
And in these stacks, it would include the testing of these stacks in several different environments, from a local environment that's running maybe on a laptop, in a dev environment where I'm collaborating with other developers, um, its build environment, if I have to build and release software, um, test, and then also in production environments. And a simple mean stack, for example, um, that's five different environments that may have five different configurations. But for a software developer, I just program on my laptop against the mean stack and it automatically gets handled in production where it's high, highly available and backups are automatically being done. It's highly secure um, depending on whatever the policies are. So this stack developer is developing these reusable um, stacks across all these different environments. Extremely important, extremely important if you want to take advantage of these new microservice architectures that are out there. Um, and uh, it's uh, very beneficial to the developers because they no longer have to uh, think about um, all those things that they normally don't, right? Like security or um, high availability, that if they just use that stack, that um, those all those abilities um, show up for them. So this is why I'm um, doing this uh, podcast, because I think we're right at the um, beginnings of this uh, stack developer, and we're starting to see the rise of these new um people that are out there, if you're saying, hey, Darren, this has been around a while already, um, then you're ahead of the curve. Because I can tell you from uh, working with several different organizations out there that this is not as um, widespread as most people would think, especially if you've already been doing it for a couple of years or so. So I'm trying to bring awareness to um, the importance of the stack developer and to um, kind of almost document how this is all happening and seeing the um, emergence of it and how it is going to actually change the way that we see products developed in the future. So in this podcast, you're going to hear lots of um, uh, things that are happening. Um, I'll do conference reports. I'll do um, things that I'm seeing and talking to customers. And uh, we'll even introduce some of the stacks that uh, I'm seeing are um really out there and making a difference uh, today and um, hope to interview um, some of the other fellow travelers that we have. Thanks for listening to Rise of the Stack Developer. If you enjoyed our podcast, go ahead and subscribe. Give us five stars and let other people know. If you want more information like tutorials, videos, white papers, check out our website, riseofthestackdev.com. Until next time, go out and build a new world, one stack at a time. On our next episode will be a conference report on DockerCon.